I want to thank Sue for that illustration. Because I've got to be honest, when I hear Winnie the Pooh, I, I do not automatically go to honey. I go to my almost four-year-old son who has this poo towel, you know, the ones with the hoods on them, and it looks like Winnie the Pooh. And that time that he came out of the bathtub and he goes running through the house and he's yelling, look, Daddy, I've got poo on my bum. That's what I think about when I think of Winnie the Pooh. And then I wonder, why does my wife teach him such things? You know, it's just, it, she didn't actually do that. Um, actually, she, she humbled me while Jason was talking. She's like, yeah, you don't change as many diapers as he thinks you do. So um, thanks, for, thanks for bringing that up, Jason. Um, yeah, so anyway, um, the Beatitudes, yeah. So as we look at the life of Jesus, you know, our primary source is the four Gospels. And when we look at the four Gospels, we get four different pictures. Each Gospel writer tries to present Jesus in just a little bit different way. And the Gospel of Matthew is concerned with presenting Jesus as the King. As a matter of fact, in the introduction to Matthew, he gives the family line of Jesus, and it traces it all the way back to King David. Now, this is important because King David was promised by God a thousand years uh, before Christ was even born that through his line, through his family, would come not a king, not someone that's going to be followed after by another king, but through his line would come the king. And so Matthew is trying to tell us that Jesus is this king. He's not simply a king. He is the king. And he spends a good part of the first part of Matthew or first part of his gospel doing just that. And then by the time you get to Matthew 5, we start seeing um, the words of the king. This is kind of the, the king's manifesto, if you will. And the words of the king are important because they show us the way of the king. And Jesus, being the eternal king who will sit on the throne of David forever, um, his way, then, that means... Um, is above and beyond any other earthly king's way. So we're not talking about a king, we're talking about the king. And we're not talking about a way, we're talking about the way. So if we're going to be looking at his kingdom, I think it's good for us to kind of understand exactly what his kingdom is like. When in a nutshell, his kingdom is spiritual rather than physical. It's true that, um, that he is sovereign over all, but his kingdom is primarily spiritual. And he makes this clear when he's on trial. The Jews bringing before Pontius Pilate, a Roman ruler, um, and Pilate is asking him these questions. You know, he's like, are you a king and what is your kingdom like? He was very interested in the answer to this because if he thought he was trying to usurp power from Rome, from Caesar, then... Um, then, then there was a problem. But Jesus tells him in John 18, 36, says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. He's basically saying, Pilate, you know what earthly kingdoms look like. You know how earthly kings act and react. And we know that Pilate saw something different in Jesus himself because he didn't want to condemn him. He wanted to let him go. And Jesus is basically saying, you know, earthly, um, humanly speaking, if you've got a king and he's about to be overthrown, his followers rise up and they try to do something to stop it. Whether they're successful or not doesn't matter. There's still that attempt to keep a king's power from being usurped by himself and by his followers. But Jesus is doing none of those things. In fact, um, 
he allows himself to be taken. We see this in the Garden of Gethsemane. The people come and they say that they're looking for, uh, for Jesus. He tells them, I am he, and they all fall down. He had the power to avoid being taken. He could have done the earthly thing and, uh, and, and set up his kingdom right then and there. But yet he chooses to go and subject himself to what's going to come next, which ultimately would be the crucifixion. And we even see his followers, when they did act out, he rebukes them for acting out in violence. And it says that, you know, this, this is not my way. So it's no wonder then that um, his kingdom and his way would look radically different from what we who are stuck somewhat in the natural world might expect. I mean, early on in his ministry, we see this. If you look at the last three weeks' sermons, I mean, if that doesn't just scream that what Jesus has to offer, what his kingdom is, is radically different than what we in the world think it is, then I don't think anything will. I mean, look at it. The first, be happy, or be attitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are the ones who basically know that they are morally bankrupt before God. Number two, blessed are those who mourn. Happy are the sad. You know, blessed are the sad. And the mourning is due to the realization and the recognition of their sinfulness. Number three, blessed are the meek. Meekness is dying to self. Meekness is suicide. Meekness is putting others before ourselves, dying to our own goals and ambitions for the sake of others. And we see this, happy are these who are, quite frankly, in pain. I mean, you know, poor in spirit, uh, those that mourn, the meek. So that brings us to um, this fourth beatitude. And if you know anything about the Beatitudes or the Be Happies, as we're calling them, um, you know that they're broken down into two categories. There's eight of them. There's the first three, which basically is an emptying of ourselves, and it ends with a hungering and a thirsting for righteousness. And then the second group um, of, of three ends with righteousness abounding, um, obviously or apparently to the point that, uh, that, it, it, that it's provoking persecution. But what we see, though, is that um, our mind and God's mind on so many things are totally different. We're starting to see the kingdom, and we're starting to see what it looks like uh, to be part of it. So that brings us to this beatitude. Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. The first question I think we need to answer then is what does it mean to hunger and thirst? It's pretty simple to get this. There's no trick uh, to interpreting this. You know, Jesus is simply using a physical metaphor to explain um, a spiritual thing. Um, and as he's doing it, I think it's funny. You notice he doesn't say, blessed are those who long for. He doesn't say, blessed are those who desire or blessed are those who really, 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 really want to be righteous. No, he, he gets a little more basic than that. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. It is our most basic need. It's something that everybody can identify with. Now, while we in the West do not understand hunger near as much as other people do, um, it is something that we, that we are aware of. Everyone that's ever had a child knows that, um, that if that baby goes hungry two seconds longer than what, it's supposed to, what it thinks it's supposed to be hungry for, um, you've got problems. So he's using this, this um, 
this physical metaphor of our most basic need, and it's a need that will not be um, ignored for very long. And he's saying this, this is how you should hunger and th- this is how you should desire or go after righteousness. It's not something that we put on the back burner. Um, you know, if we look at hunger and thirst, it's, it's, it's a desire that we cater to every day. And as a matter of fact, if we ignore it, if we don't do it, if we can't do it, um, we die. And he's saying that, that is how you should um, be viewing righteousness. So that brings us to, to righteousness. And there's two things here that I think we need to look at. Um, First is we need a good definition of what righteousness is. And the reason reason we need to define it, like like last week's sermon, we looked at meekness. And we saw that the world's definition or a contemporary definition is far different than what the Bible actually means. So our words are important and we do need to know what they mean. Another example is, is, is the word faith. The way that many in the world today, particularly those in the New Atheist Movement, would define faith and apply it to Christianity is not the biblical model of faith whatsoever. So when we're talking about the word righteousness, it's vital that we actually understand what is meant by it. And then the second thing, not only, not only is it vital that we understand what is meant by the term righteousness, but it's also vital that we understand where our source of righteousness comes from. So that's basically the two things we'll be looking at this morning. Um, How does the world define righteousness? Merriam-Webster puts it this way. Righteousness is being morally good or following religious or moral law. Okay, that's what the world says. Well, what about the Bible? Well, it's kind of convenient that we're in the Beatitudes and, and we're addressing this question because to, to kind of get an understanding of the biblical idea of what righteousness is, we don't have to go far. In fact, all we have to do is finish reading Matthew 5. And in Matthew 5, it gives us a good understanding of what righteousness is. It gives us six things, basically. There's probably more than that, but primarily six. Uh, beginning in uh, verse 21, the first thing, not only do not murder, but don't hold anger against, or don't hold anger against your brother in your heart. Number two, Not only do not commit adultery, but don't even think about it. Number three, despite what the law, which was written due to your hardness of heart, teaches concerning divorce, don't get one. Number four, do not even need to swear an oath. Let your answer be truthful. Do not lie. Number five, resist retaliation. In fact, retaliate with kindness and compassion to those who do you harm. And number six, love your enemies. Love those who hate you. Love those who mean to do you harm and who are out to get you. Well, that's our definition. I mean, the contemporary dictionary basically got that right. I mean, I know some people may think I'm going to put some kind of spiritual spin on this or something like that. I'm not. That really is a good definition of what righteousness is. Um, so now what? I mean, okay, so blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Okay, righteousness is this. So that looks like a list to me. So I'm going to make lists. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take, um, I'm going to take the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm going to take maybe Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, and I'm going to make a list. And, uh, and I'm going to prioritize my list. And perhaps what I'll do is I'll put 
I'll put the most important things first, those things I need to avoid the most and those things I need to do the most. I'll, I'll, I'll make them first, and I'll just kind of progress on down. And what I'll do is I'll commit my life somewhat to following this list. And, um, you know, as I follow this list, I get to the end of my life, I die, I stand before God, and then what I hope happens is that, is that I did 51% more good things than bad. And if that's the case, I'm in. I go to heaven. But if I do 51% more bad things than I go to hell. I mean, is that it? I mean, we've got lists, so we've got to do something with them, right? Or maybe it's not that. Uh, that, that seems a bit harsh. We'll never know if we've hit 51% or not, ever. So maybe, maybe what we do is we make this list, we, we, we try to continually be checking it off, we're conscious of the list, and God will judge us based on our sincerity to the list. Is that what gets us in? I mean, again, we've got lists, we've got to do something with them. It's Screams it in our mind, I've got to do, I've got to do. And this is where the question switches from what is righteousness, because we can discover that fairly easily. Like I said, the, the dictionary definition is, is, is pretty good, actually. But the question now goes from what is righteousness to what is my source of righteousness. I think to better understand this, we need to understand the context in which these words were first spoken. Uh, you know, first century um, Judaism, where Jesus was. And it's funny, so often, when you begin considering the, the, the context of the Bible, how very close it is to where we are today, how little men's hearts have actually changed. But, uh, but we need to understand the religious climate of his day and what people in his day we're thinking righteousness is. And like I said, when we look at these groups, try to think of contemporary parallels. There's parallels for every one of them. Four primary sects of people uh, that, that were around. There were some subsects, but most everybody fell into these four groups. And each of the groups said that we've got the corner on the market of righteousness. We know what righteousness is. Righteousness is whatever. And that's the people who would have been present at the Sermon on the Mount. You know, this pretty much or describes Jewish thought in one way or another. The first group, or denomination, if you will, are the most infamous. It's the ones we hear the most about. It seems to be the ones that we hate the most today, even. And that's the Pharisees. You see, to the Pharisees, righteousness is in keeping to tradition. Righteousness is in following the letter of the law. Righteousness is not just following the letter of the law, but it's adding new laws to it so that we can better follow the old law. And we've got this system where, where we look very pious, we look very self-righteous, and the rest of the world just looks like trash. Okay, righteousness is keeping to the law. If the Pharisees had written the Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes, it probably would have went something like this. Blessed are the legalistic. That's the Pharisees. The second group are the Sadducees. To them, righteousness is in the present. They were the progressives. They were the theologically liberal. They were the guys that said, you know, forget tradition. What we need is religion that works today. And they were willing to compromise biblical teaching and do away with much of the Old Testament in order to cater to the whims and the ebb and flow of society. That's the Sadducees. Um, a good contemporary example, Facebook theology. <laughs> the Sadducees would have loved Facebook. I hate Facebook for that reason, but <laughs> they would have loved it. The next group are the Essenes. 
To the Essenes, righteousness is in um, separation. Righteousness is removing yourself as far away as possible from what you deem to be sinful activity. When I was preparing for this, uh, a theologian that I consult quite often was uh, describing the lifestyle of the, the, the Essenes and you know, what it looked like in t- contemporary culture. And he said early on in his ministry, he was going through a Christian magazine. And in this magazine, he found an uh, a, uh, advertisement for a Christian college. And the catchphrase, or the come to our school because phrase, was this. This college is located 15 miles away from the closest sin. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I think it was probably a little closer than they thought. But there you have it. Uh, So the Essenes are get out of town. In fact, if you know anything about the Qumran Scrolls or the, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, that was an Essene library. These guys were so far removed from culture and society that when they picked up camp, and abandoned where they were, their library wasn't discovered until 2,000 years later. That's how far they tried to remove themselves from sin. And the fourth group are the zealots. To the zealots, righteousness is in revolution. Righteousness is in going against. Righteousness is political activism. The zealots today, a, a, a contemporary example of them, Um, would be these groups that when they hear that there's going to be a parade or a demonstration or whatever that celebrates a lifestyle contradictory to Scripture, they're the ones that organize the event right across the street. They are screaming just as loud. Their pickets are just as offensive. And, um, you know, they're they're basically trying to combat the world with the world's same system, the the idea of truth and love as something that's kind of foreign to them. And in Jesus' day... The zealots were basically just politically motivated terrorists. That's, 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 that's the zealots. So you've got these four groups, and they sound very different, at least on the surface. I mean, you've got the keep the law. No, no, um, the heck with the law. We're going to be inclusive. No, we're just going to get away. No, we're going to take action. You know, we're going to strike out for God. So that's, that's all of them's... Um, Um, definition of how one is righteous or the source of their righteousness. And while it sounds different to us, if we look at it a little closer, we see that they're actually identical, at least identical in the way they answer the question, what is my source of righteousness? Because they all answer that that question with I. I will. I will keep to the letter of the law. I will be inclusive. I will separate myself. I will uh, be zealous and, uh, you know, politically proactive or whatever. I will do something, and because I have done this something, I have somehow gained favor with God. And the funny thing is, is that's not just true of first century Judaism. That's been true through all, throughout all of human history. In fact, we even see it in Christianity today, sadly. All the world's religions say, I will do, and that's what will make me righteous before God. Why do we as humans insist on living this way? It's like C.S. Lewis said, and one of his, I think one of his best arguments uh, for the existence of God is that we know God exists because he puts certain desires in our heart, morality, righteousness, things like that. And we know that righteousness is one of those desires. Paul makes it clear in Romans 1 that God's law has been written on our hearts. So we have this this, 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 you know, just this natural desire to go towards 
righteousness. But what we do, because the depths of our depravity run so through us, is instead of looking at something that's supposed to point us back to God, we turn it around and we bring it back in on ourselves. So I desire righteousness, so the way I'm going to get it is I'm going to do something. Jeremiah uh, says it this way in Jeremiah 2.13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. These broken cisterns are our self-righteous actions. These are the things we build to try to, to, try to hold this living water. But they won't. They can't. As soon as a drop hits them, it runs right through the bottom, and we will never have more of God than we did in the beginning if we are trying to fill these broken system, systems. So where then will self-righteousness get us? I mean, I'm saying something that I know contradicts human nature because we just, everything in us screams, I must do. So it's got to get us somewhere, right? I mean, like I said, it is human nature. All other religions and a good part of Christianity would say, yeah, oh, yeah, that's true. You just got to do things. Well, here's where it gets us. And again, it's kind of convenient. We don't have to go far. The Beatitudes are the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. He launches into the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 20, just a couple of verses after the Beatitudes end. And Jesus says this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You know what he's saying? He's saying, unless your righteousness is better than the best rule followers, unless your righteousness is better than the best professional um, law abiders, you'll not get into heaven. You won't make it. Not only do you have to be as good as these guys, you've got to be better than these guys. He's setting up a standard that's an impossibility um, to, uh, to, to maintain, to, 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 to do anything with. Romans doesn't put it quite so tenderly. In Romans 3, 9 through 20, we get a good idea of the actual human condition. It says this starting in verse 9. Well then, should we conclude that we Jews are better than others? No, not at all. For we have already shown that all people whether Jews or Gentiles are under the power of sin. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Their talk is foul, like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given. For, it, for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. It was never God's intention to give the law as a system whereby we could follow these rules and somehow we would gain his favor. It was never the intention of the law to be something that would save us. In fact, the law's purpose is to break us, not 
save us. And we've got to get our heads around that because there are so many lists. But we also have to understand what the danger in self-righteousness is. You see, self-righteousness is self-sufficiency. Self-righteousness is me looking at myself. And the longer and the further I go down that road, the further and further away from God I become. And it, quite honestly, it turns us into monsters. Look at the things that self-righteousness creates. Number one excuse, and I do think it's a petty excuse, but the number one excuse that people give for not going to church is because it's full of hypocrites. What, and I actually agree with that statement. But what, what is a hypocrite? A hypocrite is somebody that says one thing and does something else. Self-righteousness kind of leads naturally to that. I set up this standard, and I say that I am this, and, um, and I can't even keep that standard myself, and the world sees it for what it is. Hypocrisy. That is self-righteousness. They're seeing that rather than seeing what we truly are, and what we truly are is broken before God. Because you see, when, when that is the picture we paint to the world, that we are sinners, that we are not self-righteous, that we're not, you know, these high and mighty holy rollers or something like that, it, it looks very different. Um, as a matter of fact, then our failures um, do not look quite as... Um, quite as much like failure as they do when we've got our own self-righteous systems. But Paul makes it very clear. And when you hear the words of Romans 3, if you're like me, what you tend to do is you tend to take out words like um, no one and you put it with they are not righteous. But no, don't hear that. Hear me. I. I am not righteous. No one is righteous. Not even one. No one is truly wise. There is nothing we can do to bridge the gap between ourselves and God. As a matter of fact, our attempts at doing so is oftentimes the very thing that draws us the furthest from God. Well, so what then is our hope? I mean, what do we do with this? I think a good example is to look at a professional rule follower, a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus, who later became the Apostle Paul, because he really got it. And here's what he says in Philippians 3, 4 through 9. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's not bragging. He's saying, I kept all of these perfectly he goes on to say, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own, this is key right here, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. All those things that look like he was bragging about at the beginning of this passage, he's saying is worthless. My resume is worthless before God, is what he's saying. And what we have to realize 
is something that many pastors and seminary professors have tried to beat into people's head, is that there really is two ways that we can read Scripture. I said earlier, there are these lists. We do see them. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit, and um, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, the Ten Commandments. We see these things, and, 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 and we can either read Scripture and say, okay, these things are the things I must do to gain favor with God. If I'm going to be righteousness, righteous, if I'm going to look like the guy being described in uh, Matthew 5, 6, then I must do these things. But there's another way to read the Bible, and it's actually the accurate way. And that's not to look at these as to-do lists. It's to look at this as a list of attributes of someone who has Christ living in them. It's looking at our source of righteousness being something other than ourselves, being God himself. We must realize the difference between religious to-do lists and attributes flowing out of the relationship between Christ and his followers. And uh, the band can come on up. But, um, John Calvin puts it this way. As all mankind are in the sight of God, lost sinners, we hold that Christ is their only righteousness since by his obedience he has wiped off our transgressions. By his sacrifice appeased the divine anger by his blood washed away our stains by his cross, borne our curse, and by his death made satisfaction for us. We maintain that in this way man is reconciled in Christ to God the Father by no merit of his own, by no value of works, but of gratuitous mercy. We embrace Christ by faith and come, as it were, into communion with him. This we term, after the manner of Scripture, the righteousness of faith. And then Anselm, 12th century theologian, writing a, uh, writing a pamphlet on, uh, for pastors on how to, how, how to counsel the dying and what to say to those on their deathbed. He says this. He says that, that this is what we should say to the dying. Come then, while life remains in you. In his death alone, place your whole trust. Do not place it in anything else. To his death, commit yourself wholly. With this alone, cover yourself wholly. And if the Lord, your God, will to judge you, say, Lord, between your judgment and me, I present the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. No otherwise can I contend with you. Matthew 5, 6 ends with a promise, as, as all the Beatitudes do, and this promise is that they will be satisfied. But we should, not, we should not assume that this is a satisfaction that will come if we're looking to ourselves as, as the means of righteousness. We should not assume that we'll ever be satisfied as long as we are trying to work our way to God. You see, this satisfaction comes not from our ability to, to, to be holy in and of ourselves. This satisfaction comes uh, through the realization of what the first three Beatitudes mean and then what our source of righteousness is. This satisfaction comes apart from the law. It comes through a life that has been indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. And I know that, um, I know the common view, if you ask most people, how do you get to heaven, the answer would be something similar to what I stated earlier. Your good deeds must outweigh your bad, and that's, way it, that's the way it goes. That's, that's for much of Christianity and all other world religions. So I'm not naive in thinking that there's perhaps those here that are struggling with that. Maybe, maybe you are here this morning and you've never really 
considered that our righteousness doesn't get us anywhere at all. If that's the case, you know, I'll be over here and I'd love to talk to you about what it, what it actually means to be righteous before God. Um, and if you would, uh, would just like to pray, um, we'll have some uh, elders and jail leaders over on this side. Um, if you just want someone to pray with you, and of course the front's open as well. But it's my prayer that we really do grasp that concept and know that satisfaction will not come apart from this. And that is, the Bible is not full of religious to-do lists. These lists basically only show us the attributes that we should see in someone who is a follower of Jesus Christ. Father God, um, thank you for being the God who does it all. Thank you for not being the petty God that requires stuff out of us that we could, we could never do. We could never satisfy. And I thank you, God, that even though we're so, so depraved that, God, we, we, we won't come to you and we can't come to you, God, but that you pursue us, that you come after us. And I thank you so much that unlike all the other worldviews where, where I am the source of righteousness, God, that with you, you are the source. I can put comfort in the fact that you are the sustainer of my soul because it's not, it's not dependent upon what I do, Lord. It's dependent upon what you have already done. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.